Welcome to the FOI Equip podcast, your free resource for learning and engaging with the scriptures from a Jewish perspective. Hi, everybody. I'm Chris Katolka. You know, the scriptures tell the story of God's chosen people and his plan to bring salvation to the whole world through Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Come see why it matters that God would choose an ancient people to bring a timeless hope to a lost and broken world. Now, listen, I want to encourage you to go to foiequip.org to sign up to be on our mailing list. You're going to receive vital information on how you can join our free live online FOI Equip classes. Now get ready. Join our expert staff on the FOI Equip podcast as we teach the scriptures, unravel the colorful world of Jewish culture and customs, reveal God's prophetic plan, and so much more. Now enjoy this teaching from FOI Equip. Uh, you are here to discuss the tabernacle tonight, right? Now, um, <clears throat> I can see a few of your boxes here. So I, I'm just kind of curious. Wave your hand at the screen if you have ever studied the tabernacle before. Wave your hand. Okay, so I see many of you have. So some of this will be kind of review for you, and that's great. Uh, we love being able to do that. Uh, but for some of you, it looks like it could possibly be that this is a first-time study, um, and, and that's very exciting. Um, <clears throat> what I want to start with here is just to kind of give you an overview of what we're going to be discussing over the next three weeks, okay? Um, so we're, our overall discussion over the three weeks is understanding the tabernacle's context in its context, understanding the ministry of the tabernacle, what it was for, and also trying to understand some of its current significance for Christians today. So the way that we're going to divide this out is that this week we're going to be looking in particular at the tabernacle's construction and its original significance, okay? So we're going to do the best that we can to try to keep ourselves in the in the the original setting of when and where the tabernacle was constructed and used for those uh, 40 years and then a few hundred years after that that it was used in the land of Israel following the Exodus into the land of Canaan. All right, so we're gonna we're going to stay in that time frame here tonight. Uh, lesson two is going to look more at the priesthood and understanding what the priests did in the tabernacle and understanding the sacrificial system of the Mosaic Covenant as it was practiced in the, the tabernacle. And then number three, our third lesson in uh, two, two weeks from tonight is going to be looking at some of the typology and how the New Testament uses uh, the, the imagery as well as the theology of the tabernacle as it's explained in the context of the New Testament. So we'll be in Hebrews primarily in the third week. We won't be doing a lot of that type of stuff because there's some details, some groundwork, foundational hermeneutical stuff that we get to dig into. And I don't know if that word makes your eyes glaze over, but it makes me excited. So hopefully you stick around for all three weeks. If you don't, I'm going to keep attendance. And now that I know where you all live, because you just listed it, we're going to we're going to settle accounts. <laughs> no, 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 I won't hunt you down. I promise. Um, <clears throat> all right. So let's talk about the tabernacle. You guys like that picture? That uh, you some of you may have been to a replica 
of the tabernacle uh, somewhere uh, maybe close to you. Uh, I know I'm I'm in New Jersey right now, but I live in Pennsylvania. I know that there's a there's a model, there's a, a similar construction of the tabernacle out in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Um, that's in the state where I live. So maybe you've been to one like that or been to one somewhere else. This particular one that you're looking at right now is a reconstruction of the tabernacle that is actually in southern Israel, not too far from the southern city of Elat. I got to go there a few years ago and got to tour through this, uh, this reconstruction of the tabernacle. And what's cool about this particular one is that if you look at the if you look at the landscape around there, okay, um, that is a perfect representation of what it would have looked like for the tabernacle in its original setting when they were constructing it around Sinai. All right, it's it's the the landscape there as well as the Sinai Peninsula or or wherever else the Mount Mount Sinai may have been located. All the mountain ranges around that place look very similar to this, look much, much like this, in fact. And, uh, and so this one looks very similar to what it would have looked like in its, in its first, uh, first incarnation, right, when it was being constructed. So this, this is, I'm going to show you a few pictures uh, of this, but I'm also going to show you a few pictures of, uh, of just some um, illustrations as well here tonight. Um, the tabernacle, if we're if we're just going to do a quick overview here tonight, basically speaking, and most of you know this, the tabernacle was a mobile temple constructed after the Exodus at Sinai. Okay, so it's a it's a mobile temple, which is kind of an interesting concept. We have a lot of mobile things nowadays, don't we? From mobile pet grooming to mobile nail salons to uh Mobile uh, pastoral offices, if you've ever uh, walked into a Starbucks and seen someone with a venti coffee and like 14 uh, commentaries piled around them, that's a mobile pastoral office. <laughs> uh, as, a, as a former church planter, I have had that mobile office in my past. Um, but the tabernacle was a mobile temple. All right. Uh, it's called several things throughout the, the Old Testament. Uh, it's called the sanctuary. It's called the tabernacle, obviously. It's referred to as a tent. It's also called the tabernacle of, con of the congregation. It's sometimes even referred to as a tabernacle of the tent of meeting, which, by the way, is different than the tent of meeting as it's used in Exodus 33. And it's also called the tabernacle of testimony. All right. So it's called several things, uses lots of names, but it all is referring back to the same idea. It is a mobile temple. Um, so we're going to talk uh, about the tabernacle's reception, okay? Uh, how in the world this thing came to be? How did it come about that God uh, instructed the Hebrew people in, to build this, all right? Um, now, I, I, I want to help you understand that it, it's, 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 easy to miss this idea, but as you read through Exodus, we come to Exodus with a lot of our own understanding of, of who the people of 
Israel were and who they were going to become and how God wanted to use them. We bring all of that understanding to the text. And sometimes we miss elements of what the text actually says about who the Hebrew people were at the time of the Exodus. I would love to to walk you through the basic elements, but we don't have time. I'd love to walk you through the basic elements to kind of show you exactly how un-Hebrew the Hebrew people were at the time of the Exodus. Essentially, they were probably, you might be able to say that they were more Egyptian than they were Hebrew. I mean, when Moses was first called by God at the burning bush, he says, who am I supposed to tell these people that is sending me? I don't even know a name to call you for these for these people to want to follow me, right? They had lost all concept of what it meant to follow God. They were worshiping Egyptian gods. They were doing Egyptian things. They, they did not know God. They had been there for 400 years as slaves, right? And I mean, try to think back 400 years and, and, and see if you remember your patriarchs from 400 years. Some of us have family members that love to dig into our our genealogies, right? And there are those of us that can go all the way back to, uh, to, you know, hundreds or even maybe a thousand years ago. But most of us are some kind of mutt. I I like to refer to myself as an American mutt. I don't know what all of my nationality is, except for a few little elements here and there. Um, Well, the same might be said of the Hebrew people. They didn't remember all of who they were. They didn't remember all of Abraham. They didn't remember all the promises that God had given. Who is this God that's calling us out? And so the process of God taking the Hebrew people out of the land of Egypt through all the plagues and all the judgments and then taking them into the wilderness, and then taking them to Sinai, the Jewish people like to think of this time period as though it's a process of God marrying the Hebrew people, right? So uh, there's the proposal, so to speak. There's this this proposal that I I want you for my own, and and then God buys them with a price, a bridal price, and then and then there's kind of the the period of engagement as they finally make their way out of Egypt. And when they get to Sinai, a lot of Jewish folks today, a lot of rabbis today will look at Sinai as though it's this wedding ceremony between God and his people. Okay, so he's introducing himself. He's explaining who he is. He's showing them what he's like and what a relationship with him is going to look like because they didn't know what it should look like until God revealed it through what he did as well as through Moses. So I can't overemphasize this idea that this is God introducing himself to the people that he is claiming as his own. Now, Sinai itself is really, what happens at Sinai itself is really interesting. All right. Moses, we we often think of what happened at Sinai, as though Moses went up, got the tablets, came down, was angry because they were all worshiping some other god, threw and broke the tablets, and then you know he went back up, and they they all uh, made nice, and and then we move on from there, and 
and head on into the promised land, right? Well, Sinai actually took quite a bit more time and effort than that. Did you know that Moses went up the mountain, climbed this 3,000-foot mountain at least six times? Some people think that it might have been eight. Some people think that it might have been five. The way in my reckoning, I look at it as though he probably climbed the mountain at least six different times over a period of months, many months, as God met with his people for the first time at Sinai. Now, the reason why this is important is because it's over this span of time as God explains himself and forms this covenant with his people that the tabernacle becomes operational, all right, both theologically speaking and in people's understanding, all right? So I'd like to review these these ascents just for a minute, but before we do, I have to remind you, Moses at this point is 80 years old, right? I'm trying to imagine what climbing a 3,000-foot mountain that was not easy, jagged, sharp, volcanic rock mountain at 80 years old must have been like. I did try it once. I did try climbing up one of those mountains. You can see how um, how out of place I look on the side of this mountain, don't I? Men my size were not meant to climb these types of mountains. <laughs> and this is a picture that my wife took of me. Uh, and I don't know if I'm happy about it or horrified by it, maybe a little bit of both. I am not ashamed to say that, yes, those are climbing poles in my hand. And yes, all those people that are waiting for me to get up the mountain, they waited a long time. <laughs> all right. So I'm trying to picture what it would have been like for Moses to climb this mountain again and again. God saying, come up, Moses, come up, Moses, come up, Moses. Right. And so the first time that he climbs the mountain, God offers this covenant relationship where he says, you're going to be my special treasure, my holy nation, my kingdom of priests. And then Moses goes down the mountain and Moses tells the elders what God said. And they said, are you guys going to do this? And so eventually Moses goes back up and he tells God exactly what the people said. Yes, yes, we can do this. And, and God says, okay, we need some cleansing. We need to spend three days. Make sure that you spend some time making sure that everybody is clean in the ways that God told them to be cleaned and consecrated. Moses goes back down the end of the three days of waiting. All of a sudden, God descends on the mountain, lightning, cloud, fire, smoke, quakes, and trembling. And the text says that the people tremble. They were terrified. They, they saw these, these, uh, these evidences of who God was, the power and the majesty of God, and they were afraid. And so Mount, uh, Moses goes back up the mountain as God instructs. And, uh, and then God says, okay, so we need some priests. I want you to go and, and cleanse some priests. The Levites, I want them. Okay, so go make, uh, make cleansing for them. But also tell the people not to come too close to the mountain. Bad stuff's going to happen, right? And so... Moses goes back down the mountain. He consecrates the priest. And he, before he does, he says, God, how can anybody come near? And God says, well, when you come up the next time, bring Aaron with you. And then after that third time down the mountain, 
Moses gathers all the people at the bottom of the mountain. And the text seems to indicate rather clearly, in my opinion, that God audibly speaks the Ten Commandments and the couple of chapters of the law after that. And as he does, the end of that passage says that the people were so afraid of this God that they stood afar off, even though he told them that he wanted them to come near. They stood afar off. They were terrified. So at that point, God calls Moses back up the mountain again. Number four, Moses goes up. He brings Aaron and the priests and the elders. They go up and they meet with God. And when they do, they actually have a meal on the mountain with God. And then the elders go down. Moses goes the rest of the way back up the mountain. And all of a sudden, fire consumes the top of the mountain. And Moses is gone for 40 days. We sometimes act like, man, the Hebrew people were so impatient. They couldn't wait 40 days for Moses to come back. Well, if every time you look up at the top of the mountain, the whole thing is on fire for 40 days, odds are good. They probably thought he was dead, right? Cooked by this God who is too powerful, who has, who has some very specific ideas of what it means to come into his presence. And so they have the whole episode of the golden calf where they build themselves a new God. This will be our God. Right? This is the one who took us out of Egypt. And interestingly enough, the God that they chose was an Egyptian God. So Moses comes down as God told him to. And, uh, and as he does, he breaks the tablets. He confronts Aaron uh, with the sons of Levi. He kills 3,000 people in, in punishment for what occurred. And then Moses goes back up the mountain again, number five, and intercedes for the people. And he says, God, God, please, please forgive them. And he, he almost offers himself as, as a sacrifice. And God says, leave. You're leaving without me. I don't, I'm not going with you. And Moses says, no, God, no. And God says, leave. And so Moses goes back down. He sets up a tent outside the camp to meet with God. And eventually God relents and he says, all right, I will go with you, Moses. And Moses says, but God, I need proof that you're going with us. I need you to promise me that you're showing me that you're going to go with us. So God says, build two new tablets. And come back up the mountain. Moses goes back up the mountain. God reveals his presence. He sees the backside of God's glory, right? God confirms the covenant yet again. And Moses is gone for another 40 days. And God says, write all this down, Moses. Write it down. And then when they go down the mountain, for the last time, when Moses goes down the mountain for the last time, the building of the tabernacle begins. So, wow, that's that's uh, that's an interesting long series of events, right? What in the world are we supposed to make from all that? And how in the world does it relate to the tabernacle? Well, I think there's, I'd, I'd like to highlight four lessons. There are many, and the rabbis have been discussing this for 
4,000 years. And I'm just going to boil it down to four, <laughs> which makes me stupid. But four things that we should learn from Sinai that we also see in the tabernacle. Number one, for the first time, the Hebrew people saw not only the extent of God's power, but the extent of God's holiness as well. The second idea I'd highlight is the fact that during their time at Sinai, they began to understand the inapproachability of God for sinful people. That God is so holy, God is so perfect, that sinful people cannot step up even onto the mountain where God is. The third lesson I think we can draw from, from Sinai is that there, there needs to be a mediator, right? There needs to be a mediatorial process for sinful people in order to approach God. You don't just run up to God. There's something that needs to go in between. And then the fourth idea is this relentless, intentional willingness on God's part to make a way to dwell with his chosen people. Okay, we're, we're going to touch on some of those again at the end here. So let's talk just a bit about the tabernacle's purpose. Once it was built, once God showed them the plans through Moses, once he gave them the instructions, once it was built, what was, it, what was its purpose? Number one, it was a physical dwelling for God among his people. Literally, a physical dwelling for God among his people. All right, let me, let me show you this picture. Uh, this is a picture of how God told Moses to arrange the camp where the Hebrews were camping. Every time they took up their tents and marched a little ways and God set them back down, this is the exact same way every time. You see to your right is the east, to your left is the west, you see north and south, and every, every tribe was supposed to camp in a very particular place. Notice the tribe of Levi and the, the clans of Levi are all around the tabernacle. Moses and Aaron and, and the priests were supposed to be right at the very east entrance, okay? So in order to get to God, you have to travel through the camp of some others in your own tribe. Then you travel through the Levites, and then you travel into the tabernacle's courts itself, okay? So this this shows you the idea, and the marching order is, is actually pretty similar to this. So the, the idea is that every single time they sat down to stay somewhere, to dwell somewhere for some period of time, in the midst, in the middle, is where God is. His people are gathered all around him, and he's in their midst. He's dwelling in the midst of his people. It is his physical dwelling. Now, the second uh, the second purpose is that it's a place of ongoing fellowship between God and man. We're going to talk more about that next week as we dig into Leviticus a little bit. And then the, the third is the tabernacle's purpose is a redemptive illustration. This is both for Israel and for us. All right. So. Let's get into the actual elements of the tabernacle itself. And um, 
this, as I mentioned at the beginning, for those of you that may not have been here at the very, 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 very beginning, um, this is uh, this is going to be a bit of a flyby. We're going to go rather quickly through some of these things uh, because to try to give you every single element of all of it uh, would take far, far, far more time than we have. But I want you to get the basic layout and understanding of what was there. All right. So the tabernacle's pattern. The reason why I use the word pattern is because in that uh, in that ascent by Moses, where he was there for the first time for 40 days, and the fourth ascent by Moses, that was the time when God actually showed to Moses a pattern of what the tabernacle was supposed to look like. Maybe that's why it took him 40 days. I'm not sure. And we don't know exactly what it was that God showed him. Hebrews mentions this. Acts mentions this in Stephen's speech that that when Moses went up on the mountain, God showed him something that was going to be the pattern. We don't know if that means that there is a, a heavenly version of the tabernacle or if this was some kind of spiritual model of what God was showing him that it was going to look like once it was completed. We're, we're not exactly sure. All we know is that the text says that God showed him a pattern for how everything is supposed to look. And the interesting thing is that some of the things that we're going to talk about are a little debated. There's some translation issues, and there's also some questions of like how these things actually fit together. There's some disagreement about that. Not everybody's model of the tabernacle looks exactly the same. Um, but what we do know is that there are several times throughout Exodus when God says, Moses, I want you to build this. And it has all these details. But then there's other times when God says, I want you to build it according to the pattern that I showed you on the mountain. So God gave Moses extra information, not all of which we are privy to, right? There's not every single detail of the tabernacle that are shown. But we're, let's go through the ones that God gives us, all right? So let's talk about the courtyard. As you can see by this, uh, this model of the tabernacle here in front of us. Excuse me. Um, you can see that if if we're approaching the tabernacle, we always come from the east. There's only one entry point and one exit point. It's the same point. All right. It's always from the east. So as we come up to the tabernacle, the, the, the actual location, of, I don't know if you can see my cursor on my screen here, but the actual entrance is just over here to the left of where our picture ends. Unfortunately, it wasn't a fantastic picture with all the detail. But so somewhere over there, um, there is a 30-foot entrance into the court of the tabernacle. So the courtyard is 100 cubits by 50 cubits. And if you're familiar with a cubit, some of you may not be. There, again, this is something where the measurement isn't exactly um, exactly clear at this point in history, but most people estimate that it's the length of the fingertip to your elbow. Okay, so somewhere on the order of 18 inches. So the enclosed courtyard was, was something like 150 feet by 75 feet wide. The entrance always faced east, and it was 30 feet wide, and it was in the center. Now, the interesting thing about the entrance was that the screen in front of the entrance 
was uh, was way more intricate and beautiful. <laughs> excuse me. Than uh, the rest of the curtains on the outside of the courtyard. Um, the entrance screen was made with uh, blue and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen, and it's embroidered, and it was supposed to be excellent craftsmanship made by artisans, right? The other curtains were simply white and uh, made from linen. You can see the pillars all the way around the courtyard. There's 60 of them spaced about five cubits apart surrounding the courtyard. At the bottom, they were mounted into bronze footings. And each pillar had a silver top with all of the fastenings between the tent pegs and the other, uh, the other curtains, okay? And the tent, everything else was made of bronze. Notice, you're going to hear those, those metals frequently, okay? From gold, silver, bronze. You're going to hear those a lot. There's, everything was made of the finest possible materials, even down to those colors that I mentioned in the entrance screen, purple and scarlet and blue. Some of those colors are really hard to come by. I mean, down to finding a particular type of snail and squeezing it enough to get out uh, the, the what's inside in order to make a, a dye that's the right kind of color. It, it took a lot of effort and it took a lot of cost and a lot of time, right? So these are all made of the finest possible materials at the time. So as you enter the temple court or the, the tabernacle court, the first thing you encounter is the altar of burnt offering. It's in the center of the courtyard between the curtain door and the tabernacle proper. It's made of acacia wood overlaid with gold, right? Uh, or excuse me, overlaid with bronze, I misspoke. It's about five cubits long by three cubits tall. And it has horns, it has horns on each one of its four sides. There's a bronze grate inside. And then of course it has rings and poles on either side in order to carry this as they traveled. The text says that fire burned in it continuously. The Talmud claims that's even true when they were transporting it. Can, can you imagine that? <laughs> Carrying this with fire in it. God said, never let the fire go out. And the first time that Aaron often offered sacrifice, came fire came out from God's presence and burned up that first sacrifice. Everything associated with it was made bronze, the ash pans, the shovels, the, bra uh, the bowls for the blood, the flesh hooks. Uh, and the fire pans, all of them made of bronze. The next element in the courtyard, as you make your way toward the tabernacle, is the bronze basin, right? The bronze basin. It's only used by the priests, and it's used for washing the hands and the feet prior to sacrifice and prior to entering into the tabernacle itself. It's placed between the altar and the door of the tabernacle as if to say, you have to be clean to come in here. It's got two sections, both the bowl and the stand itself. And it was made from bronze mirrors given by the women who served outside the tabernacle. All right, let's move in a little bit closer. After you've been through the courtyard, let's move into uh, what I'm referring to as the tabernacle proper. 
So there are several parts in this mobile temple. Remember, all of this stuff can be taken apart and reassembled, and different parts of the Levite clans were in charge of carrying and transporting different portions of it. And when they arrived at a place where God wanted them to camp, they fit it all back together, right? So all of this comes apart, all of it goes back together. So the outer walls of the tabernacle proper, you can see that the tabernacle is essentially an open uh, rectangle shape. It's divided into two sections. Total length is something like 30 cubits, about 45 feet. And it's about the width of 15 feet, 10 cubits. And then it's 10 cubits high as well. Um, all of the walls and uh, were made of these long planks of wood that were overlaid with gold, and they fit together tongue and groove, so to speak. Um, <clears throat> each had uh, places for uh, fittings that would hold it together. Each had um, had places for uh, for where the, the hangings would hang as well. Um, and it, each one had two bases made of pure silver. So you have gold walls, silver footings. Now, the, uh, the coverings, the four curtains, as the text calls it, sometimes coverings, sometimes tents, sometimes curtains, the four curtains were uh, were all made of different things. All right, there's a set of curtains that was that were made of goat's hair, a covering of tanned ram skins dyed red, a covering of what some people think is badger skin or even possibly dolphin skin for the very outside so that it's weatherproof. Right, and then a set of curtains that were made of that same blue and purple and scarlet yarn embroidered with cherubim, supposed to be beautiful, right? Now there's one of the hottest debates in all of this, this uh, elements of, of the tabernacle is whether or not the tabernacle was flat like the picture you see here or pitched like a tent roof, like the one you see here. This is a picture of a, uh, a Bedouin tent and uh, there are many scholars, and, and I kind of lean this way myself, based on how the text describes the curtains themselves as hanging. Um, I think it probably looked a little bit more like this rather than having a flat roof. Listen, I've been inside a tabernacle when it's 105 degrees outside. And if there isn't a peaked roof and if there isn't an opening available at the front for the smoke and the heat to release out the front, then boy, oh boy, it gets suffocating in that tent fast. So it's possible that it was a flat roof, but it's also possible that it could have had tent pegs in the center and uh, having a peaked roof, something like that. In the first room, when you enter into the tabernacle, as you enter in through those uh, the, the front wall screen that has that same design as the entrance outside, you, uh, you notice the arrangement of the first room that's called the holy place. The arrangement of the first room is always the same. To the left, you have, um, ex excuse me, the dimensions are, are I should have given you the dimensions first, are about 15 feet wide, 20 cubits long, 10 cubits high, unless it has a pitched roof, then it's higher. 
So to the right, you see your table of showbread. To the left, you see your lampstand. And in the center, right in front of the veil leading into the next chamber, the Holy of Holies, is the altar of incense centered right there. So the lampstand on the left, let's talk just a minute about that. The text tells us that the lampstand was made of one talent of pure gold. Okay, Tradition tells us that it may have been somewhere around five feet tall. And if we do our measurements right of what a talent is, we're talking about something like 75 to 90 pounds of pure gold. It's seven-pronged lampstand, and it gives light into the holy place there for the priests to be able to do their ministry. had three stems with very particular ornamentation on each of the stems. It was not molded. It was sculpted, so it didn't get poured into a form and then pull it out of the form. No, they actually sculpted it out of gold. No other dimensions are given. It was a work of an artist, right? Seven lamps burned continually, morning and night. The priest would trim the lamps, make sure there's enough oil, make sure these lights are burning all the time. Everything associated with it, from the tongs to the snuffers, all made of pure gold. The table of showbread to the right. Again, made of acacia wood overlaid with gold, just like the outer walls. The dimensions is something like three feet wide by 18 inches deep by about 27 inches tall. Okay, so it's not really tall. It, it actually is fairly low to the ground. There's a gold rim around the top. There's rings and, and, uh, and poles for being able to carry it in between camping locations. Um, <clears throat> all of the things associated with it, again, the bread pans, flagons, bowls, uh, all of that stuff was made of pure gold. Now, what they put on the table was the bread of the face in Hebrew or the bread of the presence on the table in two groups of six loaves. This is, uh, this is representative of that fellowship meal with God, right? There's, uh, there's frankincense poured over the bread every, uh, every week as it's replaced. They remain on the table for that full week, and each Sabbath, the bread needs to be replaced. The Mishnah claims that the amount of uh, the amount of um, flour that's used in making this bread indicates that there's something like seventy pounds, seventy-five pounds worth of bread every week, and then it's given to the priests to eat after it's removed. Some people wonder if there may have been wine on the table. Of course, you're going to see the symbolic significance of the potential of having both bread and wine on that table. Uh, we're not told exactly, but we are told that there are flagons that were used for the daily drink offerings that were associated with it. So it may very well have been that there was also uh, wine on the table. Now, the altar of incense. The altar of incense, again, made of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Again, its, its measurements are something like 18 inches long by 18 inches wide by two cubits tall, about the same height as the table of showbread. There are four golden horns on the altars here, gold all around on the molding, and then only the prescribed incense. And God gives us the recipe for those of you that ever get 
really, 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 really detailed, and you want you want to follow the recipe. God gives the recipe for what types of incense were allowed to be burned on this altar every day. And then lastly, you can see it right behind the uh, altar of incense there, but here's another picture, um, that veil. We're all fairly familiar with this. It stood between the holy place and the holy of holies. It was a divider for the tabernacle, 30 feet from the entrance. It hung on four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Again, we see silver, silver bases made of blue, purple, scarlet yarns, fine twine, linen, beautiful craftsmanship. And the text tells us that there were cherubim skillfully embroidered into this design as well. Now, let's step into the Holy of Holies. Okay, I know I've been going fast. I don't know if you've uh, written anything down that I've said in my wall of words, um, but uh, you know, any additional questions you have at the end, I'm happy to give some more detail. So elements in the Holy of Holies, once you draw back the curtain and you step into this 15 foot square space, right? And you enter into the Holy of Holies, the only item that dominates the entire space is the Ark of the Covenant. This was the first thing that God told them to build. And it was probably the first thing they set up every time they camped and built each layer of the tabernacle out as they put the tabernacle together in each new campsite. The Ark of the Covenant, again, acacia wood, wooden box, covered in gold. It was something like three and three quarters feet long. It was 27 inches wide and it was 27 inches tall. Again, a molding of gold around the top and then four golden rings and the, the acacia wood poles that were holding it in place, making it possible to transport. God made it clear. The only way this ever gets moved is by carrying the poles, we get closer and closer and closer to the presence of God. And so it becomes more and more and more important to follow God's uh, outlined way of coming into his presence. So inside the ark, there's three things. There's the tablets, the testimony that God gave to Moses. A golden pot with manna, Exodus 16 tells us. Aaron's rod that budded to prove that God actually had chosen Aaron and Moses to represent instead of anybody else. And then um, we're also told that in Deuteronomy 31, that the book of the law is either next to it, or even some scholars think it might indicate that it was in there. Okay, so all of the law that Moses had written out was right there next to the Ark of the Covenant as though in God's presence, God's word is right there, absolutely necessary, all right? Now, you can see based on this, uh, this picture here, um, I didn't advance my slides, forgive me. You can see on this picture here, the golden slab, one whole golden slab, that is the covering of this, this golden box, right? 
In your Bibles, it may be referred to as the mercy seat. It was, uh, it was exactly the right size to fit over the top of the box. You've already heard the dimensions there. But notice there's two cherubim on either side of it. And interestingly, the text tells us that not they're, they're supposed to be facing towards each other, but the text says that their eyes are facing down and their wings are covering over and meeting one another, right? And so there's one cherubim on each side overshadowing what the text refers to as the mercy seat. From above the cover and between the two cherubim, that's where God's presence dwelt. Sometimes we, we mistakenly think that God's presence was inside that box. I mean, if you've watched Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade, that's what they try to try to make you think, right? No, 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 no. The text says that God told Moses that he would meet and talk with him from between the two cherubim. As though his, his throne, his place of dwelling was similar to the descriptions throughout the rest of the Old Testament of being within that space where cherubim are overshadowing and cherubim are shouting out, holy, holy, holy. Now, the word that's used in Hebrew for, um, for that covering um, sometimes it refers to the idea of atonement. Sometimes your Bibles might translate it as uh, the atonement lid or cover or the propitiatory. The idea is to appease or even to smear something on something in order to cover it, right? So some people have deba debated whether or not mercy seat is the right word to describe this or if we should be calling it something more like lid or cover. But either way, the idea is tied in in, this, uh, in the way that the Hebrew is used, that this is the place where you meet with God and he chooses to meet with you, where you are, uh, where appeasement is made between you and God, where that relationship actually takes place. Now, only Moses had unlimited access to the Holy of Holies in the ark. Nobody else could go in there except the priest once a year on Yom Kippur. Right. The high priest went in there once a year. But I think it's interesting to notice that Moses had free reign. Anytime he wanted to, he could go in there and he could meet with God. God said so in Exodus 25. Uh, for those of you that are also making the translation to the second temple, maybe Herod's temple. It's interesting to notice, to remember that Herod's temple didn't have an ark. The priests performed their duty year after year on Yom Kippur throwing the blood on the, uh, at or towards the place where the ark would have been, but there was no ark there. But in the tabernacle, it was there. All right, so we've quickly and maybe too longly <laughs> uh, made our way through the pattern of the tabernacle. Um, <clears throat> what you may be wondering is what happened to it? What happened to the tabernacle after the Exodus and they began wandering through the, the wilderness? Well, 
I don't have time to go through all the details of this. You can screen grab this if you'd like to, or uh, potentially, I, I can't remember if it was in your notes or not. I think it is. Uh, but an interesting study is to follow the tabernacle from the Exodus through the wilderness into Canaan to find out where it was throughout the time of Judges. And then we have this really interesting period of time where the tabernacle and the ark get separated. And so we have this like uh, two-pronged description of where the tabernacle is versus where the ark is. And eventually when, uh, when Solomon constructs the, uh, the temple there in Jerusalem for the first time, he brings the elements of the tabernacle in and furnishes the temple with some of the things from that tabernacle. Now, um, <clears throat> when we get to 586 BC and the Babylonians sack Jerusalem and destroy the temple, um, the question then becomes, uh, where does the ark go at that point? Where is the ark? Believe it or not, there's lots of theories on this. Uh, some people think that it was destroyed when the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem in 586 and, and decimated everything. Uh, some people think it was taken to Babylon, even though 2 Kings 25 doesn't mention it in its list of spoils that were taken away. But, you know, I mean, that's that's a pretty big deal. <laughs> for If the ark had been taken away, it seems like it probably would have been mentioned there. Rabbinic tradition claims that the ark was actually buried under the temple mount by priests prior to the Babylonian invasion. And now nobody knows where it is, but it's somewhere under the temple mount, even still today. Archaeologists dreams, right? All of us who want to be Indiana Jones are thinking to ourselves, if only we could get under there. <laughs> uh, but who knows if that's correct. Second Maccabees claims that Jeremiah removed it from Jerusalem before it fell, hid it in a cave, and everybody forgot. Ethiopian Orthodox Church claims that it was given to, uh, by Solomon to an illegitimate son that he had with the Queen of Sheba. So everybody in Ethiopia thinks that they had the Ark in Ethiopia. Possibly the Ark was transported to heaven. Revelation eleven nineteen mentions that there is a uh, there there is a point when the heaven is opened and you can see the Ark there in the heavens. Now, we don't know if that's the same ark or not, but possibly it's in heaven. Jeremiah 3.16 says that the ark will no longer be necessary or even remembered at some point. So maybe it is done and gone. And then, of course, Ezekiel's vision of the millennial temple described in Ezekiel 40 to 44. It doesn't have any description of the ark as though it's not necessary. So the bottom line is. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure where it is. I'm not sure if it's even still in existence, but God knows. And uh, ultimately, God knows whether it's even necessary to continue existing. Okay. What's the point? Why, why do we study this? For us today, what is the... What is the purpose of studying through these elements of the tabernacle, understanding what happened at Sinai as it was being constructed? The first thing that I would tell you is um, you need to pay attention. 
you need to pay attention to how determined God is to live with his people. Through all of the ups and downs, through all of the obedience and disobedience, through through the times when uh, people kept the covenant to times when they they didn't live up to their end of the covenant, God kept bringing them back. God was determined to dwell with the people that he chose. It reminds me of what the New Testament says when Jesus said, in John 14, 3, that he was going to come back and bring us to be where he is. And we will be with him forever. Jesus wants us where he is. And in John 17, Jesus said that, that he not only wanted us to be where he is, he also prayed that we would see him in all the glory that he has. Right? God is determined to be with his chosen people. He's not going to be some God who stands far off, inapproachable, impossible to deal with. God wants to be close to his people. And ladies and gentlemen, that's you. He wants to live with you intimately closely, his Holy Spirit indwelling you. God has always been at the purpose of living with his people. And we see that illustrated in the tabernacle. The second lesson that I would highlight deals with the idea of this holy, perfect, powerful, exclusive God figured out a way that sinful, messed up people like me can come into his presence. At the time, it was a tabernacle. Now it's through Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection on my behalf. But notice, God figured out the way for us to approach him, to live in communion with him, and then he says, that's the only way. Violations of that way don't work out well in the Old Testament for those who tried to approach God, not God's way, like Nadab and Abihu, like the men who tried to carry the ark on an ox cart instead of by hand. Similarly, it doesn't work out well for us when we say, yeah, I can get to God however I want. All roads lead to nirvana. No. There's only one way to approach God, and it's his way. It's through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ alone. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God gets to decide, not me. There's an exclusivity about the gospel that we don't need to be ashamed of. 
Because God is the one who made it, who condescended to dwell with sinful people and made a way. The third lesson I think we can draw from this study of the tabernacle is that God has made you, in a, in a, in a sense, take this a little figuratively, but God has made you his tabernacle for the nations. Okay? The Jewish people were called to be a kingdom of priests in Exodus 19. God said, this covenant that I'm setting up with you, you're going to be my chosen people. You're going to be the apple in my eye. You're going to be my chosen ones. And I'm going to turn you into a whole nation full of priests. What does a priest do? Stands between a person and God. But even more than that, they lead others into the presence of God. They show people the way to meet with God. That was always the purpose of what the Hebrew people were supposed to become. This, this light to the rest of the nations to show them who is this God and invite them into a relationship with him. Ladies and gentlemen, Christian brothers and sisters, we have been given the exact same task. God lives with us. God lives in us. And he has asked us to go be a light to all those living in darkness. To show them the way, the exclusive way that God invites people into his presence. It reminds me of the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verse 20, where Jesus said, go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them everything that I told them, that I taught you. And lo, I am with you always. You are where I live. In a sense, you are my tabernacle, or as the New Testament calls you, you are the temple of God, where God dwells. Now go show others the way. I'm not going to leave you. Go do this. I think these are lessons that I'm still learning that come from the tabernacle that live in and through the New Testament and our relationship to God through Jesus Christ. And we're going to dig even more into that concept in lesson number three. Uh, but hopefully tonight this has pricked your interest in where we will go in the weeks ahead. Thank you for listening to our FOI Equip podcast. Again, I want to remind you to go to foiequip.org and sign up to be on our mailing list. We'd love to see you at one of our free live online FOI Equip classes. Also, be sure to listen to our other podcasts like the Jew and Gentile podcast hosted by yours truly and Steve Herzig. Also, the Gesher podcast hosted by Ty Perry. You can find out more ways to get involved with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry by visiting foiequip.org. FOI Equip is an outreach of the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. We are a worldwide evangelical ministry proclaiming biblical truth about Israel and the Messiah while bringing physical and spiritual comfort to the Jewish people. Hey, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you soon.